Welcome to the very first Sido Means Business podcast. I am very excited to introduce this brand new business podcast series to you in which high-flying local entrepreneurs will be interviewed by me, Cara Dalit, Chief Executive of the Sido Business Centre in Craigavon. Throughout this series, we will examine in depth the many nuances involved with starting and running a business, hearing from local business owners who have been there, done it, and grown successful businesses through determination, passion, innovation, and sheer hard work. We will hear about their journey to success, and amongst all the stories and anecdotes, we will hopefully have a few laughs along the way. And of course, these highly successful entrepreneurs will have a plethora of advice and top tips for you if you're at the start of your own entrepreneurial journey or just struggling to sustain your own business. So sit back, relax, drive, do the dishes, go for a run, whatever you like, while you listen to the Sido Means Business podcast. I am delighted to welcome our very first guest on the Sido Means Business podcast, Mr. Paul Troughton. Paul is the founder and CEO of Fuel IT. He founded his first IT business in 1993 while still at Queen's University, studying for his computer science degree. One of the first providers of CAD computers in Ireland, he has developed a reputation for translating highly technical issues into plain English and understanding the real needs of ICT in business. Technically minded with a passion for all things computer, Paul also owns and runs several websites dedicated to retro computing and IT preservation. His 25 plus years of experience has provided Paul with the means to be a really successful entrepreneur. His enthusiasm and technical experience have been the foundations of many long-term client relationships. His love of computing and quest for knowledge keeps him and Fuel at the front of emerging technologies. Welcome, Paul. Okay, Paul, you're very, very welcome Thank here you. to Sido today. Um, thanks for coming in and having a chat with us about um, your life and business and uh, really how you got into uh, running your own uh, IT business. Yes. So my first question of the podcast to you, Paul, would be give us a little bit about your background and what made you decide to start your own business? I, I suppose the short answer is I didn't decide to start a business. The longer answer is, I was entrepreneurial from a very young age. So at primary school, I decided to make a club and I made badges for club members and I charged 50 pants. I'm not giving my age away, but I charged 50 pants for club members to join. And I managed to get most of the class to join. And then I got in trouble with the teacher for doing that and had to give all the money back. Uh, I then also started to plant vegetables and grow them and sell them because I lived on a farm whenever I was in my early teens, 12, 13 years of age. And what I learned from that was that I didn't particularly like going out at 8 o'clock on a winter's night and pulling yeah. up leeks and, and scallions and, having, and getting very cold. <laughs> um, but the actual business started to form when I was at Queen's doing my degree. And it was born out of necessity, like a lot of businesses. I really, really didn't have the money to be there and was scrimping and saving every penny I had. And I was capable of word processing quite quickly because I'd always been interested in computers and I could type. And I offered to do a friend's dissertation for his second year and to type it up for him on the then emerging computers, which was, you got to remember, 1991 was a relatively new thing. And he agreed and he paid me two or three hundred pounds to type up his dissertation. And at that time, again showing my age, a dissertation would have cost you maybe as much as five pounds a page typeset to get done. Wow. And there had to be typeset to be presented. So there was, a, there was a lot of money involved in your end of year. And he agreed and I done it and he was, he was pleased with it. And his friend immediately asked would I do his and I said yes. One thing led to another and within about three weeks I had six or seven dissertations to do. So I seconded the help of my other friends who also had computers and offered them part of the money, not all of the money, <laughs> to do the typing. They agreed because beer money was rare supply then days. And very quickly I had six or seven different people all answering dissertations and I was handling them and taking the money and doing the business. That grew rapidly and then the question started to come about and this is what a lot of entrepreneurs will tell you is they get lucky in timing 
Um, I don't believe there is such a thing as luck. I do believe you make it. But you can be lucky in where you are, when you are. And at that moment, PCs were becoming a thing that people were asking about and wanting to know about. And I had built my own again through necessity because I couldn't afford to buy one. And um, it wasn't particularly fancy or particularly fast, but I had built it myself. And a friend of a friend asked, could I build him one if he bought the parts? So I gave him the list of parts he had to go and get from, there was no internet, remember? Mm-hmm. Definitely showing me it. But he went and looked them up in a magazine, bought the parts, gave them to me. I assembled it for him and put on the operating system, which was DOS in them days. Gave it back to him and he was over the moon. That escalated. And really, after about the first year of Queen's, I got to the stage where I was employing actual professional satakers on their off time. So during their weekends and at night, they were able to type far faster than I could. So they could put a dissertation in probably at 100 words a minute. So they could, two or three nights, they had a dissertation done. So I had three PA secretary people working for me part time. I had built them their computers because they had no computer to do it. So I, I took my earnings and funded three computers, gave them to them and got them to type. And the deal was they typed for so much per page and they got to use the computer for their children at the time, which was very beneficial to them. So it was a mutual win-win. But the truth is I was making an easy 100% markup on the paperwork and doing nothing for it. And um, the realisation that this genuinely was a business and a very profitable one was hitting home. Around that time, Queen's then got to know that I was doing this and all dissertations were done in Queen's by Queen's faculty. Mm. So they weren't happy with the fact that I was now taking their business. So to cut a very long and different story for a different day into, uh, they fired a warning shot across my bows and gave me an ultimatum to um, either give it up and continue with my degree, which I was pulling high grades and having a good time doing. Which I take it was IT. In computer science, pure mm-hmm. computer science, yeah. And mathematics. And um, there was a chap, I'm not mentioning his name, I was very fond of him, he has passed since, but there was a man at Queen's who was in charge of that department, who him and I had became friendly through my entrepreneurial streak. And I didn't know it about him, but it turned out that he had worked at IBM and was a bit entrepreneurial himself and had semi-retired and came to Queen's. And he said, off the record, you must give this up and continue with your degree, you're a promising student, blah, blah, blah. And then him and I went to the Cloisters for a drink and he says, off the record, I'm telling you, you'd be mental. There are people who wait their whole life to get a business like this. You should pursue it. And I didn't hesitate. The entrepreneur in me wanted him to say that and wanted my parents to say that and credit to both my mum and dad. I went home and laid it all on the table and went, here's how much I'm making doing this. I was on for, you know, first class and a degree. It wasn't as if I was struggling, I was having a good time and enjoying it. So it was a hard decision. But I decided to give the business a go, and that was in 1992-93, and I've never done anything since. And it's just developed naturally and grown naturally yes. since. And I suppose that's the um, an example of a real pure good business which grows organically, and there's an yeah. absolute need for it. You've identified the need and you've developed it um, yes. in what your skill set is, and you enjoy it. Yes, um, it changes over the years, obviously, but yeah. the timing was perfect. Yeah. for what the market wanted and I was in the right place with the right skill set which other people could have been but then the mindset has to be right many people have said that, you know, they just don't fathom that I gave up a first class degree to, to go out and do that in my head I was going to go back and finish my degree some other year but it never happened and you still think that was the right decision obviously well I think so yeah you think so yeah yeah whatever's meant to be really. yeah and so I suppose then at school it was your favorite subject maths and you know what would you say your strengths uh, were at school I you know one point I want to get across to a lot of people and I see this in my own children struggling and I see it in younger people today more so than I did and I basically grew up in the 80s came into my teens and matured in the 90s. And at that time, everything seemed possible and everybody could be anything. You know, you could have, you could have been a rocket scientist, you could have been a pilot, you could have you know, been the president of the United States. That feels like that has changed, like doors have closed for younger generations and I think they feel that. So the one point I wanted to make was, my primary school education was very poor because I was very unwell as a young child. 
we'll not go into the details, but it really hampered the first four years of primary school. By the time I was leaving it, I, my English and grammar and mathematics was very poor. I went to secondary school in a very low class. But by that stage, the vast majority of what was wrong with me for those years had passed and I was now fit and healthy and raring to go. I took off in secondary school and loved it. I loved the culture anyway because it was less secular and more open. There was, you were open to all these ideas. And with the help of good teachers, I started to realise I was good at mathematics. I started to enjoy the sciences a lot. English always struggled. In fact, I really didn't push my English until I was a lot older and, and in my first couple of years of business when I realised I need to be a lot better at speaking and a lot better at putting ladders together and documents together. This needs to be, this is letting me down. So I spent a lot of time then. But at that point, my maths took off and my education took off. And secondary school was great fun and I enjoyed it. And I got the opportunity to go, for those now you'll know, you got the opportunity to go to the college if you got high enough grades or you could choose somewhere else. Now I got my college exams, but when I went then, it's not like I got now, the college is a fantastic school. In fact, as is put it down, technical college or SRC. But at that stage, the college would have been considered more academia and higher standard. But when I went to the open night, the college had fairly basic computers and Porter Down Technical College, as it was called then, had unbelievably high-end computing labs. I mean, quite astounding. And I knew exactly where I wanted to go, and it didn't have anything to do with qualifications. And I asked my mum and dad then, which, credit to my mother and father, they've always had complete faith and let us do what we felt was right. And they went with me to both, and then they asked me, where do you want to go? And I said, I want to go to the tech. I want to do computers, and I want to get at those computer courses. And mum and dad went, that's fine. So I went to the tech and it was the right decision because I found my tribe, as I say, in the Portadown tech and I adored it. And I, we done all of the sciences. I even went into technical design and, and that end of it, maths, English, and I worked hard at them and I pulled very good grades. The next stage after that was then to go to your OND, as it was called, it's not called that now. I went straight to computers immediately. That's what I wanted to do. The reason I worked so hard for the three years initially was to get to the OND in computers. Got to it and loved it. Loved the teachers. I've talked many times about this in the past. I'll not name them. They know who they are, but they were incredible. And they were the reason why our classes done so well and inspired us and led us and gave us freedom too because we, we really in them days, you were playing with computers as a science. It, it, none of it was strictly defined. It was an emerging technology. Our teachers understood that. To this day, I think it's quite insightful how much they understood it because we used to think we were hacking the computers. They knew everything we were doing, but instead of chastising us, they allowed us. They, they knew that by us doing that, we were learning things that we could never be taught. So I adored that. I went through it and came out with straight distinctions in both years in every subject. and. One teacher in particular, uh, Mrs Hearn, Joan Hearn, said, Paul, I would really love you to go to the college and sit on the level just to get it under your belt. And you could actually maybe get to Queen's from here, which doesn't normally happen. Mm -hmm. So I did it because she asked me, sat the A-level, pulled a B in it, added it to my distinctions and went to Queen's. Brilliant. So that, that, but my point is that irrespective of where you are in terms of an educational facility, if there is a willingness and a work ethic, and you enjoy it, you have to enjoy it. You can achieve whatever you want. We were led to believe, not told, because that would be unfair, but we were led to believe that if you want to put it down tag, you probably weren't going to go to Queen's and do a degree. Yeah. That was the assumption. And um, and there was more than me that done it that year, I have to say. Uh, my original partner in my company, Philip, done the same course with me and pulled the same grades and went to Queen's with me. So they, they excelled, they were extraordinary at that time. Yeah, not, not uh, strictly the path that you would expect, but you got no. there nonetheless. And that's, that's fascinating that you went to the college that you knew instinctively was the right path for you because mm -hmm. of the, you know, the equipment that they had and that you could really focus in on that. And rather than taking an academic path for the sake of it to go to university, which yes. you know a lot of people do, it's like, this is the way I have to do it. So yes. that's really interesting that you can still do that and follow your passion. Yeah. 
Fantastic. Um, so in your business and running your business now, what does a typical day look like for you um, running an IT business in this area in Craigavon? Okay, so running IT in Northern Ireland compared to the rest of the world is different and most IT companies here will probably agree. We produce some of the most fantastic talent in the entire United Kingdom and Ireland. But the large companies from around the world know this and they, they pretty much go after the students as they leave Queens and Jordanstown and snap them up. Actually attracting the people that we need at our level now, our IT companies works at quite a sophisticated level. And you know, I, we just recently employed a, a, a guy who's from Turkey, Rusin, and we have a chap from Greece called Panos. And so we're having to really go far afield to get the special specialities that we need in our industry. They're not really readily available on our doorstep. What do you think we could do to retain some of the talent here in Northern Ireland in your sector specifically? I, I've had the, been asked this question before. I think the mistake, possibly if it is a mistake, it's maybe not fair to call it that. I think the issue is that some of these large companies don't really want to commit to serious money for the for Northern Ireland. So they don't really put down the roots that you think they should put down. What they'll do is they'll open up an office, in inverted commas, and they will trade here in some loose way. But the purpose of what they're doing is to scout talent. And very often that is, you know, two or three years in the Belfast office or the Antrim office, and then we'd like you to go to California where, where we really want you to go, because that's where we're based, or London. Um, I think what the local governments need to do is to realise that and to either make that more difficult to happen or to incentivise that company, because we need those companies, we want those names, incentivise them to stay here. To not say, well, that's a way to get the talent and get it to California, but to go, do you know what? Northern Ireland would be a great bridge for the, for, for the EU. I mean, we're in a situation where Brexit's happened. You, you can have your opinions about whether that's good or bad, but we can't change it. So there is an opportunity for Northern Ireland to become almost like a Geneva if we were to be sensible about what we're doing and to work together. It could, could become a very lucrative, very rich little country. Unfortunately, we're not doing those things at the moment, but it's still possible. And I think all of the local governments and local politicians need to be thinking about us in that context because it's still plausible. And the reason it's plausible is because the talent that comes out of Queen's and Jordanstown is remarkable. I employ several, maybe about 16 staff, and several of those people are directly from Queen's and Jordanstown, and they're, they're brilliant, is the only way to describe them. And I similarly have employees that have been with me from day one, and we're 30 years in business next year, and they came from Portadown Tech. Wow. And they're still with me, and they, obviously they all train constantly, they have to keep moving on. But the, the level of engineering abilities may be too general a term, but Northern Ireland has a great knack of producing technically competent people. Do you think that the people coming out of university are actually work ready for the office as a whole, um, or do you think they lack some particular skills? I think everybody leaving university lacks particular skills. They, <laughs> there are skills that you can't gain from education, and you can't even gain them from being in a workplace. You know, there, there, there are skills that are forced upon you, um, either causing failings or inadequacies, which are very important, because unless you've tested yourself, you're unaware of where your limits are. Mm. And, you know, there's an old saying which is overused, you know, a man that, a man that never made a mistake, never made anything. But it, it's, it's completely based in truth. That is true. Un, until you understand failure, you will have no appreciation for, for, for achievement. And you have to understand how to identify it. Because if you know how to identify it, you can warn others. So you can guide other people and go, that's maybe not the best idea, and suggest maybe do this. What you can't do as a parent or an employer is to force people. Because once you force them, you're taking the decision away from them. And what ultimately happens is they resent you for it. And it doesn't matter whether the decision's right or wrong. They will still resent you either way. So there's a, you, you have to have the ability and you have to try to have the ability to identify 
where the failings are and try to guide, really. Yeah, and in your course at uni, did it teach you skills such as presentation skills, communication skills, negotiation skills, as well as the kind of technical aspect of the course? If I had stayed strictly to the course, in Queens in particular, I can't commentate on Jordanstown, but I do know from, from working with them and from having people from at Jordanstown do bring in elements of practicality to their work a lot more than Queens. But that's neither better or worse, that is simply different. What Queens has to do is slightly different. Uh, there is a need for pure science, okay? There is a need for, for, for not actually working at any computers, but studying where neural networks and artificial intelligence is going to go. Those people are, are typically the leaders in that. However, did it prepare me? In some ways, maybe, yes, we all have to present, we all have to talk, um, nerve-wracking though it is. But actually, the, 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 the th- life taught me more of it than any university mm-hmm. ever did. And you don't realise these things when you're young. You only reflect on them when you're older. And it can be something as simple as time spent with your dad or your mum on a particular day where they taught you something and they didn't know they were doing that. They were just doing something and you were paying attention. And you reflect back and go, ah, that's why I was able to, to do that. So your upbringing has a lot to do with it and how much attention you pay to what's going on around you. And you can apply that later on. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an anecdotal story. Whenever I was down in Queen's, there was an opportunity in them days from, from BT, who was a huge power in Belfast. They, you would, a lot of people would remember they had Royston House and they had a technical excellence centre. And that was in the days whenever ISDN and fibre was being designed, implemented. That was the start of the internet coming to, to the province. And they had a scholarship that they offered um, every year in the computer science department. And they offered one place to the two or two and a half hundred students and they paid you for the summer, you worked there all summer, and they, they, that wasn't the exciting bit. The exciting bit was they sat you down in front of the most expensive computers money could buy, and you got to play with. For me, that's what the point was. And um, I needed to go, I, I applied immediately because the money would have been handy, and I wanted to do it anyway. But we went along to Royston House, and the interview had been set up, and I'm not allowed to do this now, but it had been set up in such a way that it was designed to make you uncomfortable. What they were testing was not your technical ability, it was your ability to cope. And the questions were leading, and the whole situation, I mean, they, they, had, a, they had a stage with three guys behind a big desk who looked for all the world like judges. <laughs> you were in an empty room in a small wooden table that was, you were right in the centre of an empty hall. The table was rickety on purpose. <laughs> I discovered afterwards had a tilt on it so it would, it would do this. And they give you a very flimsy plastic cup full to the absolute brim, totally the brim with water. And they sat it on the wee tiny badly angled table to the right. And you had to go in and take your seat. Now, the guys that were in Royston House told me afterwards that they used to get great kicks out of most people <laughs> knocking them just all over the place and then starting the interview in total nerves. I went over and I know the type, you know the type of students that you can't get your bum into them because of the, the, the grip. <laughs> so I picked up the glass, which was honestly like surface tension was keeping us from home, and I drank about half of it, right? And then I sat down in the seat. Got myself sort of comfortable, realised the seat kept going ding ding, pushed against the thing and then sat the glass down and done that and never moved the rest of the interview. <laughs> so there was other questions that they had to answer technically, but when it, but I won the scholarship out of wow. two hundred students, okay. right? Brilliant. And uh, they told me afterwards said there was only you and one other person <laughs> that actually had enough brains to pick the glass up and drink the water. Get that problem out of the Get way. Get this problem out of the way mm-hmm. and then worry about the chair and then so it was a very clever interview. Of course you wouldn't be able to do that now. Mm. But where did the skills come from doing that? I don't know. Common sense is what people put it down as. And I've been told before I have a huge amount of common sense. Common sense, I think, is a very unfair term. It's not common. Yes, it's not too common. And, it, and, it, and it's also... Um, it, it belittles it as if it's not scientific. It's like, you know, ape-man sense. Um, but I value it very highly and always have done. And when I'm interviewing people for, for roles in the company, now these roles change massively from you know finances to, to, to maybe to, to pure computer programming, which is a different thing. But when I'm interviewing them, what I'm looking for in the person is the character and do they contain that? It's not common sense. To me, personally, my belief is it's raw intelligence. 
Now, if you take intelligence and you couple it with knowledge, you get a very high achieving person. But there are people who never, unfortunately, get the opportunity to couple it with that knowledge. They may not have good schooling, a good upbringing. They might not have been very lucky, moved around. doesn't make them any less intelligent. Their intelligence still shines through. So I tend to look for that in people. If there's that natural, inquisitive, intelligent nature, I warm to them as a person anyway, irrespective of the depth of their knowledge. Because the the depth of knowledge can come. Yes, absolutely. And do you think that, I mean, you use gut instinct a lot in business. Do you get a feeling that, you know, this doesn't seem right? I should, you know, do you go with your instincts a lot? Yes, very much so. But but, an evolution, I was fascinated by that in my early years of business. First 10 years of business, I was fascinated by it. And anybody who knows me knows I read a lot of books. And particularly that type of, you know, I studied psychology at Queen's as well for a, for a pastime. I added psychology because I was interested in it. But yes, the human psyche and why we do what we do and how we do what we do interests me. And so I've read a lot about what is the gut instinct. There is a certain amount of human intuition which is naturally there in us. But I believe that your gut is actually your subconscious pulling on all the data that you've learned as long as you've put that data in. You need to be a detailed person. You need to remember and recall everything. Your subconscious will use that data against you or for you, but it'll do it subconsciously and you don't get a choice in that. And that's that's what your gut is. That feeling of, I think this is a good decision. I think your brain subconsciously has worked it all out, man. It is a good decision. Yeah, calculate it. Can yeah. you please make mm-hmm. that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yes, to answer your question, yes, I do go, oh my God. However, I don't... I probably did, when I was younger, go completely on it. So I would have been a hard overhead guy when I was in my 20s. If it felt right, I could make a decision quickly and do it. And we made decisions that were very good and brought the company down profitable roads. And we made decisions that were bad and brought the company down non-profitable roads. But I'm still a great believer in you're safer to do it and find out than not do it. It goes back to the same adage of the man that never made a mistake, never made anything. You have to do these things. So you'd say you're a calculated risk taker. Very much now, very calculated. And the older I've got, the more calculated that has become. So I now base my decisions very much on just data and a general feeling. So I look at it and go, I think this is a good idea, but let's look at some of the stats. Mm. And if the data really goes against it, if, it, if it, you know, if all signs are saying no, and my heart, for whatever reason, is still saying yes, now I'll probably say no. When I was in my twenties, I probably would have said yes. <laughs> Has there been a deal recently, or an avenue you could have gone down recently, where you kind of thought, "No, I've calculated that that's not a good idea," and then you've gone on to regret it because you've seen maybe shares increase or anything like that? Everybody wishes they could go back in time, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll give you one. So at a at a point, at a point around about the same time as Bitcoin was released, <laughs> um, I already was into high end computing. One of the things that we do, um, it's become nearly more of an novelty these days. But at, at about a point in time, it was a big part of the company's income. But we build very fast computers, or I did. These are water cooled, hand made, very specialist machines, and they're not they're not cheap. And. They have massive amounts of computing power, particularly on the graphics side. Architects would buy them, designers, people doing ad TV editing, that type of thing. And a way to test them is to get them to do very complicated calculations. The way you mine bitcoins be doing very complicated calculations. Now I needed to test them. And I there was a couple of options on the table and Bitcoin was one. <laughs> And the other one was a project called Folding at Home, which some people will know about. And Folding at Home was a global project, still is a global project, for people to carry out complicated mathematical calculations at home to try and figure out the genome for Alzheimer's. Wow. And it's been going for years and and they're very successful and they have largely nearly got there. But you could dedicate your overspend of computing power if you weren't using it or if there was too much of a spare. You could tell your computer to fold. It's called folding numbers. You're a thick of a wee bit like chasing pi to infinitum, okay? So you could fold at home do these mathematical calculations and the end result was the data was then fed back to the head organisation. Thousands of people done this all around the world and they were getting the data far quicker than they could. They they did it. Yeah, absolutely. Really good idea. Could have done Bitcoin. And then days probably could have mined 
dare I say it, five or six bitcoins a day. Wow. And I want that one. <laughs> right. <laughs> you because want because that was figuring out a cure for Alzheimer's and Bitcoin was nonsense and all you bam that would be a pizza or something stupid. It was silly idea. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. There's a big one. Oh, okay. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so can you give us a lesson that running your own business has taught you um, that you think everyone should learn and or people should realize when they're running their own business a big major lesson that you've learned in business what advice would you give to someone starting up their own business now starting their business mm. yes don't don't overthink it okay the, the 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 benefit that I had was that I was young, full of beans, didn't think of the pitfalls, didn't, you know, at the point where I decided, yeah, I'm going to give this a go, had no concept of tax, taxation, never mind VAT. Largely in them days, VAT wasn't on everything, it was on everything yeah. now, but I had no concept of that. So I applied away. In my head, this is very easy. I, I make things and I sell things and you give me your money and I give some of that, in them days about 60% of that, went to the person who got the parts off. Yeah. Easy, right? You get a year in and the tax office comes around and goes, where's your tax? And you go, don't know, don't do accounts. And uh, you know, and you suddenly realise, oh, I have to do books. And then the complications kick in and mm -hmm. you've got to calculate VAT. And those things are, they take the fun out of what you're doing. And if there's no fun in what you're doing, you shouldn't be doing it. Yeah, exactly. Young businesses, you know, anybody that thinks you go into business and you just make money, even if that is the case, you'll get bored very quick and you will you will not want to make money. You just won't want to do it. You have to enjoy what you're doing or understand that it's contributing or benefiting in some way that you know is positive and therefore you feel good about it and therefore you will do it. The money should come unless you're terrible at business and the money's an afterthought. And largely... You know, even to this day for me, and this is probably I'm guilty of this, money is largely an afterthought for me. So the, 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 what's far more important is the company, and for me now, the people in it. So it's, yeah. it's about the people. Um, somebody asked me several times, I've been asked this, and I, and I always state it, you know, what is the business in this? The nearly 30 years of age. The business is a bundle of stuff anybody could buy and put in a room, right? It's all junk, tables, chairs, it's all stuff. Mm -hmm. The business is actually the collection of 16 people in my company and how, how special they are yeah. and how intelligent they are and how dedicated they are. They're the company. Everything else is just stuff. That's right. And all I try to do is to keep those 16 people at optimum, make sure they're happy, content, well-paid, have enough leeway in their life that they don't feel constrained that they'll enjoy what they do. If they enjoy what they do, they make money. If they make money, we all make money. Great job. And they stay with you in the long term, which is we great. Have, I have employees there 30 years, as long as I've been there, yeah. yeah. And then, and I mean, a couple of the guys started with me. I was 21, um, and they started with me whenever they were 17. And we all now have matured families, and we're all getting on a bit. I'm not to say what age I'm <laughs> this year, but yeah. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, they're with me a long time. Yeah, yeah that's a sign of a, a company that looks after the employees. So it's wonderful to retain good yeah. people. You have to keep good yeah. people and yeah. incentivize them, keep them happy. Absolutely. Um, what time of day do you get the most work done and is most productive for you? And I'll also throw in <laughs> a wee thing about what day of the week do you think is most productive? Because I find Tuesdays are really productive for me and everybody else around me because it's not the start of the week where you're just kind of getting into the flow of things and you know it's not Wednesday you're just over the curve going in and it's not you know near the weekend so I think Tuesdays it seems to be very busy for everybody what would you say I I have changed my opinions on this over the years so prior to having a family just my wife and myself yeah probably weekends were important and partying was important and so Mondays wouldn't have been a great day mm. Tuesdays will be a good day, Wednesdays a good day. I tend tended then to work in the same sort of period that people would maybe identify. When children came along, my priorities changed again and that weekends were all about being with them and spending time with them and doing fun things with them. And even now that they're teenagers, um, it's about helping them with their own young lives and, and helping them with school and studying. And you know, dad gets asked a lot to help with science. <laughs> 
And I enjoy that, and that's, that time's precious. That's not, to me, it's not a chore. It's very enjoyable to sit down with your daughter and, and go over chemistry for two or three hours because you're, the two years are having a, a bit of a giggle. Not for me, it's not, but that's no. not. <laughs> but it's the time. I don't, well, I don't, I don't particularly love chemistry, but it's the, it's the time involved. Yeah, right? sure. So my, and, and COVID has an impact here, but even even prior to that, so my working pattern, through my working life, I went through many, you put on many different um, t-shirts and you do many different things. I was always the owner or one of the owners at a point in time, but at different stages, I backed out of the, the running of it, if you like, and had, you know, managing director and that type of thing. In this last seven or eight years, just with some people retiring in changing circumstances, I decided to go back to the Hallam of it as chairman and, and CEO and, and drive it and take it a particular way, largely because it was becoming a wee bit concerned for the people in the company. I didn't want anything to happen to them. I don't want it. So I, you know what? I'll take the Hallam and we'll just steady the ship. Part of what I needed to do to do that successfully was to try and completely back out of the normal daily Operations. Operation. There comes a point where you cannot be the 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 captain or the pilot, and also serve the drinks in the back. You can't do that, right? So, I started to look for key people in the business, found them, brilliant people, put them around me, put them in charge of certain areas, and backed out of it. That was a fantastic idea. I should have done it years before, but right. utterly delivered. And they they took control under my direction, and I stepped away from that. Then. So at that point, I had largely stopped having this work routine. Mm. So now it's, a, it's for me about meeting people, having conversations, setting up appointments, ins- inspiring, inspiring people, mm. particularly clients that might be interested in our product range and they want to talk to me. But COVID lockdown then changed that further. And for safety reasons, we done what a lot of companies do, and we went, this is dangerous. And we, nobody had a concept of how bad it would be no. or not be. So I said, right... My desk's free at work. It's it's a good space. Charlie was the operations director. I said, Charlie, you can sit there free from me and you're safe. I'll go home. Right. And I'll come in some days and you you'll come in every day. And we, we divvied up the office in that way. And it worked very well, actually. But it left me then at home. With internet and good connections and very fancy computers, as you can imagine, there's no mm-hmm. issue there. I can see my desk. I can see my computers. I can see everything like that. So really, we were very little different apart from not being in the office. But it did give me a degree of separation, which was interesting. It allowed me to observe, but not be present. And the great thing about that was that during that period, I had I then gained the full confidence that even if I do get hit by a bus, them guys have that place. They have it. They know how to run it. They're good. And it's a very liberating feeling to know that. Isn't it? It's great mm-hmm. when you have great people in place and you empower them to do their job. Yes. And you don't micromanage them. Yes. And you, I know uh, when I'm at home, working from home, that everything's okay. And if there's a major problem, they're going to ring me. And I'm, you know, yes. that. so it's having the right people in place, doing the right thing and letting them get on with it, you yeah. know, at times, isn't it? No, that's, that's interesting. Um, is there a, a particular myth about your industry, you know, anything that people tend to think about that's kind of wrong? Like, can, um, where do you see, what excites you about the future of technology? And is there, um, what technologies do you hope to kind of investigate further in your business? What kind of feels? So I'll answer the first thing, one about mm. myths. Um, yes, I think people who... And I think this has changed a lot, by the way, and I think it is still changing a lot. But in the early days, you've got to understand, in the 90s right through to the noughties, there would have been a misconception that people in computers are just strange, nerdy, <laughs> you know, don't want to talk to you. And the truth about it is that all businesses, whether you're a sandwich outlet or a car dealership or a computer company, or a presentation company. All businesses deal with other people. It's, a, it's another old saying overused, but it, it should be overused. People deal with people. People yeah. do not deal with companies. That's right. And it's very important that the people in my business have the ability to conduct themselves and speak, and not only that, to inspire and to lead. They can't just sit there and do the work. So 
that was a misconception that used to, to bug me. It's probably also a misconception <laughs> that we're all very young, which I was initially. I'll tell you this funny story. And this, this company is still a client of mine 28, 29 years later. When I was 21, I looked all of 15. <laughs> and I went down to meet a guy who had spoken to on the phone about computerizing his architectural practice. They had no computers. Okay. This was a lot of money. Um, maybe 25 computers, you're talking about computers would have been two grand a pop and you would have needed printers and there's a lot of money involved. And I went down to meet him and um, I became good friends with him over the years and he retired recently and he's a lovely man. But Norman was waiting on somebody arriving <laughs> and I went into the office and the receptionist said, yes, and I explained who it was. He goes, yes, obviously, please, now, that's okay. And um, she was just going for lunch. It was lunchtime meeting. And she said, I'm just popping out to lunch, but Norman will be out when he's ready. I went, that's okay. And I sat down and had a bag and I had a suit on, of course. And um, I didn't know Norman. I didn't know who Norman was. And it was very busy office. Lots of people to and fro. So this man popped out of a room, like all the men in a popular room, and looked into reception, nodded at me, and looked around and went back into the office. And this <laughs> happened two or three times, until eventually most of the staff had all went through the front door with their coats all the way to lunch. Very few people left. This chap came back out again, and he, he said, uh, sorry, did the reception? I go, she said, she was away to lunch. Okay, right. And he said, yeah, and who are you here to see? He says, I'm here to see Norman. He says, yes, uh, who are you? I says, Paul Trout. And he looked at me and he, he's a charismatic fellow anyway, but he just burst out laughing, which he probably shouldn't have done. And he went, you cannot seriously be the guy I'm going to talk to you about computers. Wow. And him and I had a bit of a giggle about it and hit it off. And I'd done his IT ever since. But there was this, con- you know, he just couldn't get his head around the fact that he was going to talk sensibly to me to buy computers. So that's maybe the misconception. Now, the other part of your question was what? Um, about, yeah, so what technologies oh, right. um, excite you and yes. that you would like to focus on maybe in your business or interest in? So we have moved, we, we now are working closely with a lot of AI stuff, which you hear talked about quite a bit. And AI technology both scares me, I'll be quite honest with you. Maybe that's an age thing, I don't know. The speed with which it's moving is maybe what's concerning, not what it does. It's like a lot of technologies, if put into the right context and used for good, it could be amazing, but it could just as easily be abused, and that's the fear. Like Elon Musk would talk about. Yes. So AI is staggeringly advanced, far more than I think any normal person has any concept of. And, And it's not slowing down. And we are one epoch away from you know, the next AI designing its replacement and we won't be able to understand the complexities of that replacement. We are very close from, if you want to use the term giving birth, it's not maybe the right term, but we're very close to... Being out of control. To effectively having to let it go or kill it. It's like one or the other. And that's quite unnerving. But AI in general does excite me and the ability, we use it in the industry at the minute to... um, well, people use lots of things, but one example is automating routes for people that are doing deliveries, for automating picking in stores, for guiding people who are going to warehouses. You know, you can put augmented reality, which is a set over a pair of glass, glass yeah. right? You can augment the reality and, and you can include AI to bring that person around the warehouse in the minimum amount of time or to identify products maybe they're trying to pick or pack that weren't there, but the AI knows this is actually it. There, there's a lot... You know, there's, there, there's sadly, there will be jobs that will go as a direct result. And in areas where, um, particular areas where good mathematics is required, so certain scientific areas, accountancy, you know, the AI that we're demonstrating in, in one of the products, our flagship product is SAP B1, which is uh, an ERP package for businesses, end to end, does the accounts and everything in between. And um, the AI accountant in it, um, will do your checks and balances quicker than any human. Yeah. It'll it'll mark all your income and invoices. It'll mark all your payments. It'll check the payments against the invoices and to present them to you. And it only presents them to you to make you feel good about yourself. It doesn't have to do that. It could just process them all and file them all through. And you would never know. And it can do it instantaneously. Yeah. So the need for that level of bookkeeping slash accountancy, what I would call semi-professional, where there's a lot of people employed, mm. I think is going to come under severe pressure from AI, it will do all of that stuff and it will do it far easier. What's your opinion on driverless cars? (laughs) Um, I think they're inevitable but I don't like them. 
No. <laughs> and the, the reason why I don't like them is because I like driving. I like motorsport, sport, right. I like bikes, I like cars, and I enjoy driving it, it's not sure. So to get to the point where I've no choice, like there is no steering wheel, there's no option for me to drive would be yeah. sort of That's annoying. Day for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, um, just a couple of questions um, to do with if you could go back and tell your 18 year old self anything, a piece of advice, what would that be for your future self? Have I stumped you there? <laughs> I mean, you mean apart from do the Bitcoin? Not the... Yes. <laughs> apart <laughs> from, from that, that one. <laughs> um, I've got many of examples like that. Buy shares and Google. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but a piece of advice, you know, for running a business, say, or your life in general, you know. I'll combine both business and life in general. My father taught me very, he never really actually came out and said it per se, but he taught me it every day, which was to work hard and play hard. Mm. So he believed that you should all work and no play makes you very dull. So if you have a hobby or an interest or something you love doing, you should totally do it. But in order to be allowed to do it, you have to do the work. You cannot do this and not work, right? So in his, in his mantra, it would be, you take care of your family and your wife and your children and everybody around you. And when you've that done, you're allowed to go and go shooting or fishing or whatever it is you want to do. I would still countenance that as a basic general good rule for life. Mm. You can become, I, I notice younger generations becoming very secularly obsessed with things. So they will decide that, I don't know what it is, they'll decide that they do a thing or they're, they're, they're a particular person or a particular way categorizing them. categorizing themselves it could even be sexual orientation in this while that is comes under attack everywhere but it, it that's not the issue that's not the point the point is how people define themselves and how they decide they are mm-hmm. and i see a lot of young people pigeonholing themselves very early mm-hmm. and i don't understand why they do it so i don't understand why they go that's definitely me 100 percent and and worse than that you know whenever we were young i'm including you maybe <laughs> whenever i was young Better answer, right? Okay. Uh, whenever I was young, there was none of that. Yeah. There was no history. The only history was you made going, I saw you last Thursday, you know, you were living. But there was no history. So if you decided that you wanted to be a punk rocker one weekend, yes. right? You could be that. And whenever your mates who were having matters found out and they would want to give you kicking, you could be having matters, right? Exactly. Right. Now that's a very great example, but it's the same as for my year in the 80s. But it's the same thing. Mm. You didn't have to tie yourself down. Mm. And in fact, everybody talks about how fluid everything is now. And I don't agree. I don't think it's as fluid as it was when we were young. We didn't get hung up on the question of any of that. We simply got on with our lives. People are now, people feel the need, young people in particular feel the need to identify, which is overwhelming for them. It's like, if I don't identify, you don't need to, just do your thing. So in business, it's the same. Businesses naturally will have to change and mould, organically change and mould and grow. You may do some of this calculative. You might say, I'm buying the company that makes those things there. They fit into my repertoire of products. I'll buy them, I'll add them. And it's not a forced thing, but it's planned. And you add that to your repertoire. But you might have to adapt because all of a sudden that company was discovered to be employing children workers in China for 14 years and their name is now Dirt and you no longer can sell them. That's not your choice now and you have to adapt. So businesses should be proud of adoption and change. They shouldn't fear it. And, and there they, is a lot of fear yeah. in that, and a lot of businesses will say, no, well, that's the way we've always done it, and that's it. Worst thing you could ever say in a company, in my, yeah. my book. Yeah. Somebody, somebody told me one time, I don't know whether I read it, or somebody told it to me, but I wrote it at the top of my diary. I keep a daily diary I have done for years, dozens. And, oh, wow, um, you do every single yeah, day. Right? And I don't write into every day. I don't write into every day. I like the diary because I, uh, I can write in on the day that is the day. So there could be gaps of five days, not a word spoken. But if there's something poignant or in my thoughts, it can be as something as simple as minutes from the meeting that I was attending. I don't attend all the operational meetings, don't need to. But when I go into the meeting, I'm looking for very succinct, typically quite distilled answers on things. Because yeah. that's my job. You know, I, I tap the clocks and monitor where we're going. Yeah. The, the other two guys are flying the plane. You know, I'm sort of checking the difference, okay? So my meetings tend to be um, 
distilled as a word I would use. I don't want to talk for two hours. We want to have a 20 minute meeting and I want to know three important things and then I get that in a jot of my book. But I write other things into it. And the issue that, that I think people have at the minute with business is that you need the ability to, to change. You need the ability to migrate. And you know, you're, you have to be able to reflect migrate. So you have to be able to go back and say, I thought this at this moment in time. And that was okay for that moment in time, but I don't think that now. And actually where we're going is over here. And if you jot that down, you can always go back and take a look at it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a, you know, I just think people have this opinion that they have to stick a staff on the ground and go, this is it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And as you said earlier about, you know, if you hate doing a particular aspect of business, like the bookkeeping or the marketing or whatever it might be, you know, farm it out to people to do that if you can afford to. I mean, I would always tell our clients here, you know, get to learn how to do books to begin with, just to get an idea of what's actually going on financially in your company yes. so you can understand it. But spend your time then doing sales, business development, talking to people. Um, and looking after your staff and ship it out to someone else because that's not the best way for you to spend your time. No, you need, you know, you need to be able to walk into the cockpit of a seven four seven and know what it, I think personally as a CEO you should know what every clock's for. Yeah. You should, mm-hmm. right? You should have that level of detail, but you shouldn't go around reading all of them. You'd be that's there for right. half an hour. You should just walk into the other people who are flying up and go, "Hey, things good, right? Okay." Why is the big clock I mean that should be between two and eight? Why is it why is it nine? Oh, just check that day for you know, morning. Mm-hmm. And look the you know, why is the, why is that like, why are we cruising about two thousand feet below where we should be, surely we should be up not two thousand slipstream? Oh we thought we were okay. Your job is to assist and to guide and correct yeah. and to monitor mm-hmm. at CEO level. It's not to go in and go, right, you can go for a break and grab the I'll fly now. That's not what you should do. No. Um, but in order to do that, you need to understand what all the clocks are. And in order to understand what all the clocks are, you have to read, you have to educate yourself. Aye, and to speak with authority, that you know yes. by yes. doing, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no. yeah, don't be the guy who walks in, gives off a bit of it and doesn't know what I know the clocks are. That's not good either. That's maybe me. <laughs> <laughs> um, just one last question for you then, uh, Paul. It's been really insightful, interesting. Love your stories and anecdotes there. And um, it's lovely to hear someone with a, such a successful business and how, you know, the little new nuances of business and how you operate and uh, your journey there through education which is fantastic so what's the next thing for fuel it what any plans that excite you uh, about the the near future and how the business is going to develop we we are largely a company of two halves now we have the existing business which is infrastructure network services we do all the traditional stuff and the vast majority of new companies starting up find it difficult to get into that because you need men and vans and money and equipment and it needs to be assets to do that. So we're very fortunate that we have years of building that up. So we can fit and do fit lots of computers and servers and cabling and switches and all the stuff that people use all over the country. Yeah. That side of the business is mature, has been there a long time. Dare I say it, they're very good at it. So I just, they do that every day very successfully. That's the traditional part of business, and that's very much a uh, uh, bread and butter end of it. The more exciting part of it, maybe at the moment, is the SAP side. Mm-hmm. We would have been a dealer in products for accountancy, like seeds and things like that, for many years. And they were treated largely like a bit of a necessary evil, like you have to have some form of accounts, therefore, you have to buy seeds. And that's the premise in which people went about buying it. So it came down to thrashing out price and getting some trailing. The customers that we had started to work with going back about seven or eight years ago were different type of businesses. They, they were businesses that either were in emerging markets, which were very successful and very profitable, and therefore they had lots of money, and that's maybe why they were a wee bit more relaxed. You could argue that point. Mm-hmm. But more than that, they tended to be companies that looked at their business in a different way. Their approach to what they were doing was not like that. Mm-hmm. And what I mean is they didn't look at IT like a necessary evil. When I started in IT, one of the benefits of being on 30 years is when I started in IT, it very much at the start 
was treated like a new science, like, oh, we have to have a computer. Some companies even bought computers and weren't quite sure what they were going to do with it. They just wanted to have one in reception, you know. <laughs> um, I remember two companies that had a computer in reception and the typewriter beside it. <laughs> uh, no idea why. Um, but then as time went on, they became sort of the hard... Useful. They became useful, but they also became that horrible cream box in the corner that I hate, and they're just a necessary evil. And they were treated a wee bit like mm. that for a while. And then the internet changed things dramatically. Where we are now with our emerging clients with SAP, those businesses that are implementing SAP B1 are thinking about their companies differently. And without naming any names, they're typically pursuing the internet as a selling platform. They're typically pushing the products into global markets. They don't think Northern Ireland or even Ireland. They truly think globally and they should, they're right to do that. And the products like SAP, to be fair, are more expensive than a product like Sage, but they are as far removed as a horse from a Ferrari. There's just no, they're not the same type of thing at all. And what's exciting about it is whenever you, whenever you envisage, whenever somebody's hungry for that change, and they've maybe only understood that there is products out there like the Sage type, I'm sick of saying Sage, a bit unfair, but products like that, the older generational software, yes. non-AI, you know, zero AI, zero cloud, all that type of thing. Whenever you show them what's possible, I see the excitement light up in their face again. They're not aware that you can do this. And when we show them what can be done, you can see them almost scrabbling for, wow, okay, how do we get this? Now, the, the products and things that require more effort, more work and more money. For their, for bigger companies. They're, they're, they're sort of, I, you say that, we put them into some very small companies. I mean, there was, one, there was a young man that was setting up a chemical business. It was literally him and his father. Right. And um, he put it in. Okay. But, but he was highly functioning young man, very intelligent um, scientist, and he knew exactly what he was doing, but he knew what the future would bring, and it did bring it. He exploded onto the world market with products, and it just went boom. So he, he knew enough to know that would happen, and mm. therefore he put the, he put the mm. stuff in place. But SAPB1, and it's, it's AI, and it's, um, you know, it's use of things like Google Glass, and um, augmented reality and and all of that is just very special and really changes businesses and particularly and you know we've had a couple of customers put it in because it solved their immediate problems but they weren't thinking of anything beyond those problems and they've been blown away by what they can do and they've actually changed direction mm -hmm. so the, the the product has changed their company's direction not the other That's around interesting. yeah mm -hmm. so and that type of software is continually developing now because the functionality of AI and stuff is now moving at such a pace that I'm not won't say we have problems keeping up with, but we have to do significantly more research constantly as a company now to stay abreast of what's really cool and what's coming down the road. It's very hard to keep up with, isn't it? Well, it's, it's a, it's a, a when we, you know, real money is set aside for that. That is a constant thing. Yeah, research and development mm -hmm. there. Listen, Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us You're here at Sido welcome. today. It was lovely to chat to you. Wish you all the best with your business and um, keep in touch with us. I'll have to get you in to give a wee talk at Sido to some of our clients sometime. Not a problem, yeah. thank you. Thank you so much.